Keisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym and the acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We're all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, we're going to talk about thriving in disruption and how we can successfully pivot from disruption to reinvention. My guest today, Dennis Skinner, is masterful at this. I had an opportunity to meet and work with Dennis back in 2015 when I was putting together a leadership event for over 100 innovators and technologists in my group. My manager had given me the go-ahead to craft this event from top to bottom, and I had his full support to deliver on the high-level objective, which was to inspire greater creativity and innovation in the org. This was an opportunity to create a different leadership event, something out of the box, because we needed to reinvent ourselves and change the perception of the organization. It was time to change the game on innovation, and that's exactly what we did. Dennis was a creative mastermind and partner throughout the entire process, including Day Up. He has continued to be a tremendous business partner and friend ever since. With one phone call to Dennis, I always take whatever I'm doing to the next level. So let me introduce you to Dennis. Dennis Skinner is the founder and president of Many to One, the facilitation practice. He is a consultant and facilitator whose mission is to accelerate business transformation for companies of all sizes by harnessing the creative power of collaboration. For over 20 years, he's been designing and facilitating workshops in which groups from five to 500 people collaborate in real time to develop powerful strategies, solve complex problems, and design innovative solutions together. Dennis brings his creative energy and deep expertise to every engagement. So let's welcome Dennis to the podcast. Welcome, Dennis. Hey, Lakeisha. Good morning. It's good to be with you. After talking about your podcast for ages, it's great to actually be on it. I am so excited. Absolutely. As I said earlier, and I'm sure you're aware, you know, anytime I have a project, you're the first person I call because you always help me take it to the next level. And so, of course, the podcast would be no different. So thank you so much for your partnership. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So, you know, why don't we get started? I I know I'm excited to just kind of launch in and share you with my audience. So why don't we start with your origin story? Tell me a little bit about your background and where you're from and, and really how that really shaped who you are today? Well, yeah. I mean, I like to tell people that if you had a list of privileged attributes, I check all the boxes, you know, white American male. I grew up in a really loving home, parents that were married all their lives and in kind of a small town in central Illinois. So mm-hmm. uh, I grew up, you know, really in kind of an idyllic setting and it was a small town in the Midwest. So I grew up with this like kind of 
deep work ethic that, you know, Midwesterners are known for. And um, I think there's also in the Midwest a sort of like, I guess I'd call it like a productive guilt. Like you always feel like you're not quite doing well enough or there's something <laughs> left undone, right? which doesn't lead you to like curl up in a ball, but it leads you to be like, what else could I be doing to make myself useful? And um, I think that's sort of stuck with me over the years. I moved to Arizona right between my junior and senior years of high school, mm-hmm. which was super traumatic because I was ready to be like big man on campus in my small farming community high school. And suddenly I'm thrust into this huge high school in the middle of uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, where like there's all these, you know, sort of wealthy kids who literally like I'm looking for subtitles because they speak a language <laughs> I don't even understand. Oh, um, my goodness. So that was that definitely shaped me. I went to Arizona State, got an industrial engineering degree and found this job at Intel as a summer hire, which ended up turning into a 24 year career. Wow. And enter Lakeisha near the end of that career at Intel. So that's kind of the broad sweep. Well, I definitely want to tap into that Intel career because it was just simply amazing. But before I do that, you know, you talk a little bit about your journey from the Midwest and, and yeah. really just having a, a strong work ethic, right? And really wanting yep. to make sure that you did everything you could and you didn't leave anything on the table. Talk a little bit about some of your biggest influences growing up in the maybe you know, where you started and as you transitioned to Arizona, if anything. Yeah, I mean, so many. Like I was, uh, well, Obviously, my mom and dad were probably the biggest influence on my life, as is the case with most people, I think. But then, I, you know, I had some faith leaders in my life. I was in the scouting program. One guy in particular that kind of jumps to the top of my list is this scout leader I had named Mr. Dickinson. And I'm sure he has a first name, but I never heard it because he was <laughs> Mr. Dickinson. And he was a militant scout leader, but he had a heart and this great sense of humor. And I will never forget like I went all the way to Eagle in, in Boy Scouts and that, you know, I've got a weird relationship with scouting because there's all sorts of kind of dark parts of that organization. I'm not necessarily as happy with now, but at the time I was all in and my Eagle project was to like build this outdoor, like Vesper church area at this church, like where people could go outside and have like sunrise services. And I had a team of scouts and we spent like six weeks mowing down weeds and building benches and putting up a cross and about, I don't know, three weeks before I was to present this back to the board of review, the city came through and plowed it over because apparently it was right next to a ditch that they needed to widen. And I had no idea. I just came up mm-hmm. to my project one day and it's like mowed over. So I remember going to my board of review with Mr. Dickinson and like, I'm like in tears going in here because I'm like, I'm so embarrassed and I'm just going to, it's going to be a failure and they're not going to pass me because I didn't really finish the project. And I'll never forget at the end, this guy just sort of, he just kind of, muttered a little laugh under his breath. And he said, Skinner, I think you learned more on this project than anyone ever learned on an Eagle project. You passed <laughs> with flying colors. And that just has always stuck with me. Like to me, it was this abysmal failure. I'm right. going in in tears thinking I'm going to be like judged. And this right. guy's reminding me that actually that was one of the bigger, and it still is in fact, one of the bigger learning experiences in my life. So hugely influential because now I kind of look at things that might look like they're about Mm -hmm. to go down in flames as potentially a big growth experience. Yeah. Growth and learning opportunities. I love it. Thanks for sharing that story. And thanks, Mr. Dickinson. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you may be and whatever your first name might be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So when you think back on your experiences growing up and what really shaped you, and that sounds like a clearly a defining moment, 
Would you say that was a defining moment that also helped you really define your roar, really identify your roar? Mm. I love that question because it implies we all have it in us and it's just a matter of some experience is going to bring it to the surface. I think for me, that experience was moving to Arizona and this idea Mm -hmm. of like, my normal was, you know, a small school in a small town with simple people, flannel shirts, Levi's and, you know, tennis shoes with one lace missing. And suddenly here (laughs) I am in this, like, there were 2,800 kids at this high school and they were like wearing their you know, their shirts with insignias on them that I'd never seen before and designer everything. And mm-hmm. it was just a completely different world. Like I was swimming in water that I'd never felt before. And so, you know, I think for me, that was defining because I could have easily just sort of like cowered in the background and just tried to survive mm-hmm. that year and get out of it and get into college. But I remember thinking like, I got to find my way into this. And I was a music guy and I'm like, well, I'm just going to throw myself in the band because band mm-hmm. is always like a community. And um, I'm like, I'm just going to go in there. I played clarinet. I'm like, I'm just going to go and challenge whoever the first chair clarinetist is to be the first chair clarinetist. Cause back then you had, it was like competitive and you would right, you know, go absolutely. in a room with the band director and you'd challenge this person. There would be a winner <laughs> and a loser and whoever came out, the winner got the chair. And Exactly. So I challenged the first chair clarinetist thinking, this is the only way I know to kind of break in. And I, I barely edged the guy out. And suddenly I'm the first chair clarinetist and everyone's like, oh, who is this guy? And I kind of instantly had this community of like 200 mm-hmm. kids in the music program. And, you know, that may sound like simple, but for me, it was kind of, I keep coming back to that in my life where it's like, I'm in a situation where I don't know the rules. I have no idea how to break in. And I could easily sort of hide in the corner. But I remember that experience. And it's like, I just need to act. I just need to take mm-hmm. an action, just do something, right? And in doing that, especially by doing it in the direction of something important to me, like community in that case, right? Um, I'm going to find my way. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So you had to be bold. You know, in your case, you said, okay, I'm going to go in an area that I know. I know how to play the clarinet and I'm going to join the band. And, you know, by the way, I was a trombonist and I I do remember those first chair challenges. Okay. (laughs) And those are always fun. Yeah. Um, But it it sounds like you you took the first step and said, I'm just going to jump in and take action. And you found your community. And that's super important in every aspect of life. Finding Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, talk a little bit about, you know, you said you interned at Intel and that internship turned into over a 20-year successful career. Maybe talk a little bit about your, your career at Intel and maybe a, a pivot or two that you made. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I started at Intel as an industrial engineer because that was my degree. And, uh, and I went to work at a factory we used to have in North Phoenix. And mm-hmm. about six weeks after taking my job, they announced they're going to shut down that factory. So my, you know, my first real job and I'm currently, you know, I'm thrown immediately into the redeployment pool and having to look for a new job, which was disappointing. But um, I found a job as a software developer and I had a minor in computer science. I'm like, all right, you know, it's not really what I plan to do, but it's a job and I know how to write code. So I applied for the job and I ended up getting it and I ended up being a software developer for a few years and really had a lot of fun with that. Again, not really having that be my intention, but shortly into that work, I became a supervisor. And then shortly after becoming a supervisor, I became a manager of managers. And that's when I really realized like what I love to do is leading Mm -hmm. teams. It's not engineering and it's not coding, it's leading people. And 
most of my career at Intel, I was sort of like a utility middle and senior manager leading teams. And mostly those were teams that were going through some sort of a major transition. Either it was a new team or a merging of teams or a team that had maybe was underperforming and needed to uh, you know, become high performing. And I kind of went from role to role to role doing that kind of leadership work of taking teams from you know, good to great, you might say, or, or from nothing to something mm-hmm. and found that that was really what I loved to do. And um, near the end of my career at Intel, I was on this benchmarking team that was going around to high tech companies and kind of sharing best practices. And one of those companies was HP. And the thing that HP showed us um, in our little tour there was this capability they had called the Garage Works. And it was a team of full-time dedicated facilitators and this really cool off-site collaboration center that was near a big HP facility in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And where HP teams had a uh, really thorny, complicated problem where many groups had to work together to solve it, they could come to the center and they'd be assigned a facilitator who would lead them through a structured process to do that work. And this capability at HP had become legendary. I mean, people loved it. They thought of it as a competitive advantage. Talking to the people on that team, they were like some of the happiest employees I'd ever talked to. Seeing the center, which was like floor to ceiling whiteboards and movable furniture and just a place you would want to go if you wanted to go solve problems. Right. And we're like, oh my gosh, we need one of these at Intel. And we were able to kind of come back and sell some pretty, you know, risk-taking leaders on trying it out. Mm -hmm. And so we started, uh, myself and two other people started this similar capability called the Accelerated Results Center. We did this in the year 2000, kind of, you know, struggled at first to kind of figure out how this worked and um, kind of learned on our on our own time how to be facilitators, although we were all kind of naturally drawn to that kind of work. And long story short, like six years later, we were doing 100 workshops a year at this collaboration center called the ARC wow. uh, mm-hmm. at Intel. And after six years of doing that work, I realized personally, like this was for lack of a better word, it was like my destiny. Like mm-hmm. I loved this work. It lit all of my bulbs to the brightest mm-hmm. setting. <laughs> I, I couldn't wait to come to work. At the end of a workshop, people are like, we're exhausted. How do you do this work? I'm like, hey, if you wanted to stick around and get pizza, I could keep going until midnight because <laughs> I love this work. So, uh, you know, that for me was, I always tell people, it's like, too bad it took me like, you know, 20 years to figure out what I actually love to do, but I had finally found that that sort of destiny, that intersection of what I love to do and what people tell me I'm good at doing. Wow. You found the sweet spot. I love that of what your passion was. And so you, you know, again, you're on that journey. You you discover that you obviously, as you guys launched that center, you were able to probably solve some of the most difficult problems and bring teams together in in such powerful ways, you know, and finding that sweet spot, you decided to launch out, right? You decided to make a pivot. Talk a little bit about how you decided to follow your own passion and start your own facilitation company. How was that decision and, and that process? Well, you know, I like that you said I decided. That's kind because actually um, the universe kind of told me it was time to do that. I have so many points in my life. I, in my heart and mind, I know what I want to do, but I don't have the courage to do it until the universe gives me a little nudge, call it God or call it, you know, some random force that's masquerading as a higher power. But like, you know, basically, totally agree. We, yeah, yeah. We, we hit this economic downturn in, you know, in the high tech industry, it started happening before it hit, 
you know, in 2008. So around 2006, Intel was suffering sort of the effects of the high tech bubble bursting and started to kind of cut back on anything that wasn't delivering revenue. And so my baby, my accelerated results center was one of those areas that they had to cut. So I was sort of at a crossroads. I could go back to being a leader of organizations, you know, which I was good at and had happiness doing, but not anything close to what I had running this center, or I could strike out on my own. So I ended up saying, you know, thanks Intel for the 24-year career, but I'm going to take off and try this on my own. Lots of nights laying awake, you know, many of them in tears, wondering if I was about to do the wrong thing or make the biggest mistake in my life. But I just, Mm -hmm. I knew in my heart of hearts, I knew that I had to do this work and the opportunity to do it at Intel was being taken away. So I kind of only had one choice. Yeah, it was a decision, but I kind of only had one choice, which is, you know, I'm going to move boldly in the direction of my values and, uh, and take the leap. And so I did. Wow, I love that. You know, so much in that, right? I mean, what was a slight setback or kind of change, you know, in your role, so to speak, of what you were going to be able to do was really that setup for you to really move forward and pursue your passion in a greater measure. I love that. Yeah, duh. many times we've had that choice to make, and it's been a really difficult choice because you had a phenomenal career, and you sounds like you absolutely could have stayed and continued on the path at Intel, but you chose to kind of take that leap of faith and really dig deep to that power within and really show some courage and and bravery and just pursue what was really most important to your North Star, so to speak. I think you discovered what your North Star was, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of been a theme throughout my life is like knowing what's important to me kind of makes decisions a little easier to make. If you don't know what's important to you, it's sort of a struggle, but it's like, I know what's important to me. And in that particular case, anyway, It's kind of like there wasn't a choice to make. I just had to leave. So I know you and I have talked a lot about really just being clear on what it is that you want to pursue, being clear on your value system, and really all Mm -hmm. things will align to that. So that just speaks to another example of that in your life as well. Well, let me ask, because, you know, right now, you know, we are in a, you know, unique environment. Everything shifted from being face-to-face as a result of this pandemic to suddenly we're all in this virtual environment. And as an entrepreneur who's been successful for a number of years, just curious, has this pandemic at all disrupted your business? And if so, what pivots are you having to make to make sure that you can continue to prosper beyond the pandemic? And uh, maybe what shifts should we be thinking about as well? No, it hasn't affected me at all. Okay, just great. Kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, it's basically turned my world upside down as it has with just about everybody. But like my whole business, Lakeisha, is face-to-face workshops. Like everything I do culminates in getting a bunch of people in a room Mm -hmm. with whiteboards and flip charts and post-it notes and sticky dots and, you know, looking each other face in the face, you know, getting together in little groups of four to six people in a corner and working on, on an assignment. It's all in a room. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the minute that I heard that there's this thing that might turn into a pandemic, I'm like, I could be screwed here. Like I could, re- <laughs> I could right, literally right. be screwed. I got to rethink some things. <laughs> I got to rethink some things. Exactly. Now, I mean, it turns out that, you know, remote work isn't new, right? So over the years, I've been thinking about like, how might I build a, 
a remote workshop capability. And, you know, I've thought about it and I've done a little bit of research, but it's always been kind of half-hearted because the face-to-face stuff was working so well and I had plenty mm-hmm. of business. So, so again, it's sort of like the universe is kicking me in a direction that I kind of knew in my heart of hearts mm-hmm. I needed to be moving in anyway, right? Right, right. But now I suddenly didn't really have a choice. So, you know, the week that everybody sort of got locked down, which was like, what, eight weeks ago or so, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. And in that week, I had four workshops cancel. So people are wow. like, we can't, you know, we'd love to do this with you, Dennis, but, you know, we're locked down, so we can't go face to face. So I just, I'm like, okay, I got to figure this out. So I went back online. I started researching all of these sort of online collaboration tools. I picked like five of them. I went deep on them. I went to webinars. I met with CEOs. I, you know, did some sort of mock things with a couple of my friends just to kick the tires, whittled it down to a couple, went even deeper on those and then picked one. And uh, I'm like, I'm going to start using this platform to start configuring what would have been a face-to-face workshop into what a remote experience might look like. Right. And then reaching out to people and saying, hey, if you're willing to try it, I'm willing to try it. Let's take your workshop that would have been face-to-face remote. And it's been working really, really well. And people are like, I'm actually thinking, in fact, I'm not just thinking people have been telling me like this remote kind of quote unquote face-to-face collaboration experience is probably something that's going to persist long after the lockdown is lifted. And I don't know what you think, but I think that's a learning that most people are taking out of this pandemic is like, hey, we can actually do things remotely just as if not more effectively than we thought we could. And maybe we should be doing more of this kind of work. Absolutely. So uh, it, the current environment really was presented an opportunity for you to look at pivoting your business model and really even expanding it to some degree, right? Because at some point yeah. we'll be back face to face, but now you've actually added a whole nother capability to your practice for lack of a better term. Yeah. And um, how did you, you know, you talked a little bit about the emotion of it all, but you know, you, what I hear too, is you, you had a decision, you know, do I panic or do I pivot? That's and I it. Think That's been pivoted. my mantra, Lakeisha, as you know, you could either yes. panic or you can pivot. That's right. And that's exactly what you did. You said, okay, no, I need to pivot, right? And so I think as leaders sometimes, right, it's, it's okay to, you know, initially feel that kind of that emotional reaction, but that emotion is data. And you said, okay, well, the data is I've got to make a decision because I've got to pivot my business model. And so, I mean, I just, that in and of itself kind of speaks to you kind of unleashing that roar within, right? And knowing what yeah. you, you needed to do. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Lakeisha, in the sense that when you're presented with a situation like this, your first reaction, is to go to fear. Mm-hmm. And you know, fear is, and you said it, it's an emotion, but it doesn't have to control you. And I've been working, you know, I've, I have a daughter, I have three kids, and one of them is a, uh, is a therapist. And mm-hmm. she's been turning me on to some of these techniques. I've struggled with like anxiety all of my life. And that anxiety typically is rooted in some voice in my brain that's telling me something. And I start mm-hmm. to believe that story. Like, hey, you're going to fail miserably, or you're going to go in front of the eagle board of advisors and they're going to laugh at you, right? Or whatever it is, the the, (laughs) the scenario of the day and the voices are telling me like, you're a failure, you're not capable, you're going to be embarrassed, you know, this is not going to go well, Dennis. And that's fear, right? Those are voices, you know, and you can't control them, by the way. This is research I've been doing on the human brain is like, these things are going to happen. You can control them no more than you can control like traffic noise you know, coming through a window, it's there, right? but you can choose to pay attention to it, or you can choose to just sort of notice it, laugh at it, and then set it aside. Even though the voice is still telling you those things, you're like, I'm mm-hmm. just not, I'm choosing just not to listen to that right now. Because what I know more than believing what you're telling me, 
what I know is I've encountered a lot of difficulty in my life and I'm still here. So that must mean that I'm able to get through this or else I wouldn't be here. So I'm just going to start taking action in the direction of my values and we'll see what happens. And um, I think that's the key is like fear is just a story that your mind is telling you. And if you can listen to it, notice it, laugh at it, but just set it aside and start moving, just start doing things in the direction of what's important to you. The fear doesn't matter. It doesn't go away. You don't actually fear less. I know you and I have had this conversation. You still fear, right? But it's not controlling you anymore. It's there, but it's not, it has no power over you because you're just moving, just taking one step at a time. I'm going to go research tools. Okay. Now I'm going to pick a tool. Okay. Now I'm going to get some friends in a room and we're going to try it out. Okay. Now I'm going to send an email out to my clients. You know, it's just one step at a time in the direction of what's important. And through that whole process, fear is just like, damn it, I have no power. Right. <laughs> I love that. And you're right. We spend hours talking about this and you've actually helped shape my mindset really and helped me crystallize my roar and why A is such a huge part of actually moving past that fear and having the ability to take one step at a time. And I love what you said. It's truly the power of choice. It's not that fear goes away, but it's how are you managing that emotion, right? How are you choosing to move past that fear or put it aside? I think you and I talked about the fact that fear at times, you know, to us, we've heard false evidence of being real as an acronym, but it's also a surprise. And that's exactly what you did when you had to make a shift, when you had to make a pivot three weeks ago, yeah. you know, not when you had to make a pivot, not three weeks ago, several weeks ago, Yeah. but sat down and to really figure out how do I transition in this time? Well, you know, Lakeisha, going through that process with you is easy because you have done the work to clarify what's important to you. You've done the reflection at the beginning of your roar. So yes. it's just, you know, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, helping clarify things for you and maybe giving you a, a few little pointers. But my goodness, you know, that's the hard work is knowing which direction you want to be going in by reflecting on what your values are. And then, you know, which direction to take your action in. So you make it easy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, and you, and you kind of talked about the skills and mindset required to pivot and quickly thrive through disruption, right? You, it yeah. really is just kind of arresting your emotions and saying, okay, you're in check. I'm going to hold you in one hand while I map out my plan in the other hand, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This uh, one psychologist that my daughter turned me on to has this metaphor of like, you're in a boat, like you're driving a boat. And there's all these little monsters in the boat and they start to come up towards you as you're trying to steer the boat. And they're like climbing on your body and they're trying to turn the wheel and everything. And the trick is just to get not, you won't ever get them out of the boat, but you Mm -hmm. can just stick them in the back of the boat so that you can actually steer. Right. And they're Mm -hmm. not getting in the way. And I just love that metaphor. Just kind of make fun of them and say, I notice you, I see you, but you have no power here. I love that. Get thee behind. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the other mindset, which we haven't really talked about yet today is like the O in roar. I think right Mm -hmm. now the opportunity is so important. You know, I've heard this phrase. I wish I'd thought of it, but I use it all the time. I can't remember who said it, but it's like, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Yes. Right. And like (laughs) in the crisis is all of the opportunity in the chaos is all of the positive possibilities. And so I think another mindset that is going to help people, including myself, be successful is just to keep asking, what if, what if, like, okay, 
What's so great about a face-to-face workshop? Well, there's intimacy and there's closeness and there's tactile interaction with the artifacts of decisions and ideas and you're moving post-it notes around. Well, what right. if we could get that in a Zoom call? Oh, give me a break. That's not possible. Well, what if it were possible? Why not? Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, just really the difference between asking that question and not asking that question is curling in a ball in the corner and waiting for the storm to go over and mm-hmm. actually harnessing the power of the storm to do something that you couldn't have done otherwise. So what if, I think for me, that's the key question to ask to make sure the crisis you know, doesn't go to waste. And I guess, you know, in the same breath asking like, who needs my help? Like, how mm-hmm. can I be helpful? Where is there an unmet need maybe in this crisis that didn't exist before? Well, people are all home. Like they want to collaborate and they can. Okay, how can right. I help? And what if I could? And you put those two things together and suddenly you're coming up with a way to not just create a new normal, but create a better normal, like something where you go, that crisis was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, how, what if, and how could I make this actually become better? I love that. It's really our our perspective on things, right? And and that possibility mindset, that possibility thinking, and how can we take every, what might seem to be an adversity and uh, turn it into something that is good for you, right? It's a growth opportunity for you. It's always finding the good in, in every situation and really looking at those times as how can I really transform uh, myself, my org, my team, or really move to the next level? Maybe do something yeah. I've always wanted to do, you know, do the thing that I'm afraid of, right? We always talk right. about that, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think what you're saying is, is forward motion and position ourselves to flourish even through this pandemic. We can actually do that by asking yeah. ourselves those what if questions. Right. I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of this new virtual environment that we're all navigating and and actually, you know, finding the best way to do that and create connections, Mm -hmm. you know, through this, uh, the virtual environment, what are some things that you think we can do to really make sure that we're creating more connected and engaging, Mm -hmm. even in a virtual environment? Well, I mean, there's no shortage of top 10 lists on the internet right now of ways to do that. And, (laughs) and I've got my own, like, I think, you know, if you really boil it all down, I would say just don't forget that human beings are still human beings. Mm-hmm. When you're in the same room, you don't forget that because you can see people in three dimensions. But on a Zoom call where it's like Hollywood squares, it's easy <laughs> to forget that that's not just a picture of a head and shoulders. That's a human being. So if, if you keep that in the front as kind of your guiding principle that humans are still humans, like I think we need to keep our video camera on. I'm sorry. A lot of people are saying I can't do that because I've got COVID hair. Uh, let's <laughs> all, we all have COVID hair. Okay. And yeah, we right. all have our dog barking in the background and that's cool because we're people, right? I think turn your video camera on. A lot of people are already doing that, but if not, that's a way to make sure you remember that we're humans and not just a picture in a name tent. Right. Mm-hmm. I also feel like we need to do more interaction in a remote meeting than we would in a face-to-face meeting. I literally try to set a timer for five minutes and -hmm. not let five minutes go without some sort of interaction. It could be as simple as I have a question that I want everyone to answer and I'm going to go around the horn and have everyone answer that question. It could be You know, um, Zoom has breakout capability, which you can have people go out into little pairs and talk about something for five minutes and come back with their insight. That, by the way, is an amazing tool. I wish the other online platforms had that 
and like start your meeting. And by the way, lean into what may be fear around this, but start your meeting with something that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Like I like to start a meeting just by taking 30 seconds and saying, could we all just take a breath, like breathe with me. In fact, you and I, let's do this right now. Just take a mm-hmm. deep breath, just that one deep breath in and out. Okay, gang. Great. We're centered. Here's why we're here. Let's get moving. It takes like that only took five seconds, right? Yeah. Some people may be like, well, that's woo woo. Like I'll do my (laughs) yoga on my own time. Thank you very much, Mr. Skinner. But no, no, we're human beings. We breathe and we're stressed and we need to sort of recenter ourselves before we focus on an important problem that hopefully brought us together in a meeting. So that's another one. There's also like, I know I've been in meetings where people are like, Hey, let's start the meeting and go around and just like, tell me how you're doing. And Mm -hmm. I think the intent of that is beautiful because we all have stuff going on that we kind of need to unload in order to be able to focus on anything else. But I think like maybe a a more focused question, especially one that might focus on positivity, that might be a little more like thought provoking is a better way to do it. Like what's one thing you're doing to take care of yourself right now during the pandemic or you know, what's one thing you have learned about yourself because of COVID or what's giving you hope today or what's a new habit that you're forming, you know, or maybe what's something that you realize you need more than you realized you need it before the pandemic hit. And it can't be toilet paper, like something right. else, <laughs> okay. right? right. But, but something that gets people to dig a little bit, open up a little bit. And we remind ourselves that we have this like shared humanity that's going to keep us connected in spite of the fact that this Zoom call is just a bunch of pictures in a grid. Wow, I love that. Those were phenomenal tips. Yeah, and very simple to incorporate to your point, right? I think sometimes we make things bigger than they really are. Yeah, although this is something else I've been thinking about a lot, Lakeisha, is like, I think even before the pandemic, we have been tending more and more towards trying to solve problems too quickly. Mm-hmm. trying to like do the quick fix. Like, oh, you know, we lost half of our business because we made a bad strategic decision. Let's have a two hour call and let's figure out what to do. No, mm-hmm. no, you can't fix that in two hours. Like that's a deep problem. And I think we've been, even before the pandemic, we've been tending to try to find the quick fix to things where we really need to go deep and spend more time and really take a rigorous structured approach to solving the problem. And I think that's gotten worse with remote work because mm-hmm. it's hard to do deep work in a Zoom call <laughs> or a Skype right. or a WebEx, right? And so that's where I've been trying to help my clients with some of these kind of online platforms where you go into this like canvas that's kind of like a big remote whiteboard and everybody has their own electronic sticky notes and sticky dots and real time we're all in this space collaborating together. And um, I'm finding it's a way that we can kind of simulate that ability to slow down, spend the time to rigorously figure out like what's really going on here? What are the symptoms? What are the root causes? Which are the most important ones to remove? If we were to remove them, how would life get better? And, and what do we want to actually, you know, how do we want to wrap those up in plans and decisions? Thank you for sharing that because that's a big challenge today in this new yeah. world order. Totally. And if your listeners are interested, there's a tool called Mural, M-U-R-A-L. Uh-huh. That's, uh, you know, it's got a little bit of startup learning curve for you as a meeting leader, 
but for the participants, it's pretty easy. And um, I'd be happy, you know, just to chat with folks if they want to get a little quick start on it, because it's kind of magic in terms of what you can get people to do in a remote session. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. I will actually be talking to you about that myself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. What else can I be doing to really, I would say, plant good in the world or, or try to make people's lives better? And you have a, you've had for years a strong heart and passion for volunteerism. Anything in that space, right, that you want to talk about? Well, you know, there's this, this is going to probably be deeper than you wanted on this question, but there's one of my favorite books of all time is called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's written mm-hmm. by a Holocaust survivor who was then afterwards developed this sort of field of psychology called logotherapy. And it's based on his observation that in the concentration camp, those people who were finding a way to help each other were surviving longer Mm -hmm. than those who didn't, who were more like folded in on themselves. So I think that times like this, where it's easy to say, poor me, like, oh my gosh, you know, I got to homeschool my kids Mm -hmm. and do my job and try to be a good partner and take care of the dog and try to keep my sanity. And I'm running out of toilet paper and they're telling me I can't have (laughs) Wendy's cheeseburgers anymore. Like you gotta be kidding. (laughs) So like, it's easy and it's not like, there's no judgment there. Like that's human nature is to fold in on yourself and start Mm -hmm. to think about all the things you don't have and all the ways that your life is hard and that, you know, okay, I get that. And it's human nature, no judgment. But I think the way out of that is to think like, who around me can I help? Yeah, Like, you know, who can I help? Where is there an unmet need that I am actually maybe uniquely qualified to help? Maybe there's somebody I could just bake a batch of cookies, throw them in a box and mail them to them. Something simple. Or maybe there's a skill I have that others don't. Or maybe I'm having a particularly good day, a rare, particularly good day. And I can just spread some sunshine to somebody in my squad that I know isn't. Or it could be something bigger, like with an actual like shift in your priorities. But I just think that's, for me, I think that's the takeaway is like, I love it. You know, Mr. Rogers said in, in crises, go look for the helpers. Where are the helpers, right? Well, maybe mm-hmm. we could be the helpers and find that in doing that, we're not just making other people's lives better, but we're making our own life better. We're like making yeah. it easier to get through something that for all of us in varying degrees is just super hard. I love that. No, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, especially at a time like this. We need to be focused on helping each other, right? And that's yep. to where you can find, you know, to your point, you know, going to the movies is canceled. Shopping is canceled. Oh my gosh, <laughs> shopping is canceled. Um, yep. In the store, right? But joy is not canceled. Right. Hope is not canceled. Helping one another isn't canceled, right? Yeah. Those simple acts of kindness, those random acts of kindness are not canceled. And that's really what actually fuels us as humans, right? We love to be able to connect and also help and empower others with the gifts that we have. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Well, listen, I could talk to you all day and I often do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I know you're like, Lakeisha, this is great, but I do have other things to do. So no, why don't we just kind of wrap up in our lightning round? What I'll do is I'll say a word or phrase Uh and you can tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Awesome. Favorite food? Pizza. With I don't eat meat, but I would love to cheat and put like three layers of pepperoni on it. Okay, I love it. I love it. Your guilty pleasure? Pizza. Now, I don't eat okay. meat, but I like to put pepperoni and layer layer on top of it. No, no, no. My uh, 
I don't watch TV much, but lately I got to admit I'm watching Ozark. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. binge watching Ozark and that, that is a crazy show and I feel a little guilty about it. I'm not going to lie. That's all right. I love it too. I love it too. I'm done. I've already, it's, it's over. I'm like, when's the next season? Coming? <laughs> How about your dream vacation? My dream vacation would be a house on the beach that's secluded. There's like no other houses around me, but there's like a little village I can get to walking distance where I can get my pepperoni pizza. Okay. I love but it. But I'm right, I'm right on the beach and I can just walk on the beach and hear the waves and, uh, and smell the ocean air. Oh, I love it. I love how you're taking the pizza everywhere you go. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so would you prefer to climb a mountain or jump out of a plane? You know, I have thought a lot about this. I've gone back and forth about the jumping out of the plane. Like I think where I've landed, no pun intended, is that uh-huh. I'm not going to jump out of a plane. If I'm going to die, I don't want that to be the way I go. So I'm, okay. I would go up the mountain. I'd go up the mountain. Okay. Machu Picchu. Okay, that'll be my mountain. I love it. I love it. And then the last one is who inspires you? I'll tell you so many people, but I am inspired right now by Bill Gates. He has, and there's a great documentary on him. It's sort of like, I think it's called something like The Mind of Bill or something like that. It's like on uh, Netflix. On mm-hmm. Netflix, yeah. And he has found a way to take his superpower, which is looking at data, finding patterns, and figuring out what the right decision is to capitalize on them. Mm-hmm. towards like huge world problems, the latest one being the pandemic. But he's worked on, you know, clean water and, and curing disease and just finding a way to take his wealth and his like God-given brain talents and put them to amazing use. I just, I love that guy. Yep. I've watched that too. I need to finish it, but it, I was so totally inspired by him. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Well, listen, I want to make sure to your point that uh, we can continue to connect and follow up with you. My listeners can. And so you're on LinkedIn as Dennis Skinner. Uh, We want to make sure we tap into you there. And, you know, again, there's opportunities to connect with you via Twitter, I'm sure. And then the other most important place is that should we reach out to you at at your website for many to one, which is mtofacilitators.com. That's right. And uh, we can also send you an email, I would assume, if we have further questions on how we can leverage some of the tools that you've put in place to help us with our collaborating. Absolutely. And- yeah. Shoot me a note. I'm at Dennis at mtofacilitators.com. Awesome. Yay. It's been a wonderful time chatting with you. And uh, thank you so much for all your support over the years. It's really made a difference in my life. Thank you for all that you're doing. I love what you're doing. I love your message and your method. And um, I think you're making a huge difference in the world. I'm just so privileged to be a part of it. Lakeisha, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, friend. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 